coming to you direct from the heart of New York City all the way to wherever you are. You're listening to the VIP Jazzwall Report. It's been a tragic week with the news of the passing away of the legendary comic and Oscar-winning actor Robin Williams. Most of us listening today have grown up with him and he's grown up with us. He was almost like a brother one never had. His death is difficult to come to terms with, but when it is because of depression, desperation or addiction, it always feels that much sadder. And the irony in Robin's case was that he made us laugh while deep inside he cried. Robin's death brings alive a whole bunch of questions as to how seriously should we take the modern-day demons of depression, desperation, addiction and suicide. Is it a case of... It'll never happen to me, or do we simply not know what to do when it's around us? Our guest today is Dr. Carl Benzio, who's a psychiatrist and founder of Lighthouse Network, which is an addiction and mental health counseling helpline. He's worked for President George Bush. He's led a health team into Iraq. But I think his biggest credibility is from his own personal experience because he himself struggled with addiction but successfully recovered from it and is now helping others. His skill lies in bringing together the study of brain chemistry, psychiatry and spiritual truth that result in life transformation. Welcome to the show, Carl. Hey, great to be with you, Vip, and excited to be with you and your audience to hopefully shed some uh, good help to listeners after this, you know, from this tragic event. Well, thank you so much. So thank you very much for coming on. Um, talking about Robin Williams, does success, do you think, bring its own demons? And the reason I ask that is because you think when you see a celebrity that they have it all. You know, it's the glamour, the wealth, um, the the what they do. Uh we all, in a way, aspire to that. Yeah, having it all, I mean, what does that really mean? So trying to define materially, mm. he certainly seems to have access to everything. But deeper than that, there's psychological and spiritual needs that we don't know if those were met. It certainly sounds like that was a significant struggle for him most of his life, right. really getting those psychological and spiritual needs met. And it, with success itself, when you're successful... A lot of times what drives success is the need for approval, the need to have others accept you, to gain their attention. And so that's a hard bucket to fill. Mm. You know, when can you get enough acceptance, enough validation, enough love from your audience? And I think he just had this continual pursuit and was never going to finally get that, you know, that final topper you know, to get it to that limit that he was shooting for. Now, he went to rehab. Am I right? Correct. I think he went to rehab twice that I found out. So... You know, from my point of view, um, I would think that rehab would work, but then he went again, and then obviously that didn't work. So where do you think does rehab go wrong, or where does the person who's going to rehab go wrong? No, that's a great question. You know, whenever people are struggling, mm. uh, oftentimes they need to get out of their environment and be in a protective supervised situation. And that's what rehab does. It provides protection from that substance that the person is struggling with. When they can't stop on their own, they have supervision and guidance in a protected environment. Unfortunately, most people stay in rehab for maybe two, three, four weeks. That's just the start of their treatment process. Good treatment is really going to look at all three spheres, you know, that physical element of detox and substances and, and getting back nutrition and sleep, looking at psychological. Well, why am I using that substance to start with? Why, why am I using that as a go-to coping mechanism in dealing with life stress or adversity? And then a good rehab 
gets better outcomes when it infuses the spiritual component of God, of where we get our value, where we get our purpose, those big, deep questions that we have. So rehab, sorry, rehab is more a guiding center as opposed to a cure center. Exactly. Rehab is just the start of a situation. So just whenever your car has a problem, you go and you get it fixed. Mm. Well, that doesn't mean you don't stop taking care of your car anymore. It's just the first stop to start to get things back on track. But then there's ongoing depth of um, exploration, understanding, and hopefully applying those skills that you're learning and putting them into play daily in your life to start to turn around and, and meet those deeper needs that we all have and we struggle with insecurity and inadequacy and fear. Um, so we need to continue to practice those long after those 30 days are done. So finding support groups, finding a counselor, bring the family involved in it so they can understand what they can help that person to do uh, in this lifelong battle for most people. So in a simple way, it's almost like dieting. Once you've achieved your target weight, you can't go back to eating what you used to. You have to follow a plan with exercise and diet and so on and so forth. Yeah, hopefully there's new skills and a new strategy you have of living life, of you know approaching the dinner table. Mm. And the same with addictions and depression and anxiety. It's really a lifelong, hopefully, program of better skills to achieve that fulfillment and peace that we all strive for but is very elusive for many of us. Now, all the press reports say that Robin Williams was depressed, right? Uh, one of his, uh, one of his um, illnesses, so to speak. What's the difference between sadness and depression? That's a great question. You know, everybody is going to suffer from sadness at some point in their life. Mm. And what sadness is, is our natural reaction or our God-given warning system that lets us know when something's not going right or there's potential loss or danger in our life. So if somebody lets us down, if we're disappointed, um, somebody passes or dies, sadness is our natural response. That's our warning system letting us know, boy, something's not going right. It's usually a very time-limited situation. It doesn't impact our overall functioning. I can be sad about a situation but still go out and coach my daughter's Little League games or have a nice dinner with my wife. Where sort of pushes the, the limit and goes farther is what we call depression. Sometimes people might have heard it called clinical depression or major depression, but that's whenever people are have a prolonged sadness for more than a couple weeks for no apparent reason. It might have started with something, but now it's progressed past that, and it really starts to interfere with a person's functioning. So they're not being able to see clearly. They're not having the relationships they should have. They're maybe distracted at work, maybe not sleeping very well. So whenever it starts to really impact your functioning, that's where it's sort of gone from just a sadness that is time-limited and we can still function to a depression that starts, for some people, become very debilitating and can often lead to suicidal thoughts in some people. Well, can you clarify you use the word functioning and then you use the word seeing? Um, you mean actual eyesight? No, that's a good point. You know, that's that psychological vision of how we view our life, you know, how I view my wife or my work or what's important to me. So it's those lenses that we use to see our life through. Um, depression, it's like, you know, the old character Pigpen in Charlie Brown who has that dirt cloud that follows them around. So having depression is like having a storm cloud around your around your head. Well, the one thing I'm getting from you, the one thing I'm getting from you is that if my state of sadness is longer than two weeks, that's a warning sign. What's the other warning sign that I could, uh, within myself, feel that maybe 
I might be in a depression. Yeah, for sometimes people it affects their sleep. They either sleep too much or not enough. They're restless at night. Um, some people have appetite changes. Some have impact in their energy. They feel sluggish, mm. lethargic, can't get out of bed in the morning. You know, when they were used to just pop out of bed, now it takes them a while. It's effort to really get out of bed. For some people, they don't enjoy, you know, whether you enjoy going playing tennis, watching TV, having dinner with your family. Now the sort of joy in life experiences is getting sucked out. For a lot of people, especially women, crying spells. And then there's sort of deeper feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, mm-hmm. or guilt um, just try to, you know, keep you up at night and just influence the way you, you see life. So the, so the glass is half empty all the time. So those are the things I could recognize through myself or maybe have people around me tell me that I've changed as long as it's over two weeks. Medically, now if I go somewhere to go see my doctor, how, what do, they, how do they analyze depression? They're going to ask pretty much those same kind of questions that I've asked or those warning signs. They're going to ask, do you have these set of warning signs? Mm-hmm. Now they're also going to ask other things because many things can cause depression. So for some people, it's medical issues. Now, Robin Williams had a heart problem over the last five years of, your, of his life. So for some people, whenever you don't, when your heart's not pumping enough and you're not getting enough oxygen to your brain, for some people that can lead to depression. So there are physical reasons like Parkinson's disease, or for some women have postpartum depression because of the dr- dramatic hormone changes that occur after delivering a baby. Uh, some people with cancer will develop a depression the way that cancer sort of eats away at their body and affects their brain chemistry. So a physical illness can go to an emotional illness. Correct. You know, our brain is an organ. You know, the brain sort of serves two purposes. It's physical, and there's a lot of brain chemistry and very intricate wiring that's in our brain, but our brain also houses that, that thinking part of us, that emotions, our personality, that psychological aspect of who we are. So if we have illnesses that affect the body, mm-hmm. it's going to affect the brain chemistry and then can affect our emotional state or how we relate with each other, or how we see our own self and our own life. So the doctor is going to rule out any of those medical situations. They might want to even take some blood tests to see if maybe you're anemic or have diabetes or some of those illnesses. But for most people, it's usually a combination of psychological and spiritual things, things that we've taken from our childhood, as in Robin Williams had some significant childhood situations of being bullied, being lonely, uh, being shy, that probably were never um, resolved, and he never um, you know, had some skills taught to him to how to overcome some of those issues. And as they just continue to progress through life without being treated or, or being worked on, can lead to an ongoing depression, um, just not feeling adequate, feeling like everybody else understands how to live this game of life, but yet he's left behind. So as time progresses, is depression declining in America or increasing? You know, that's a great question. It's hard for us to tell because depression wasn't even really that, that much diagnosed or recognized back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. It's but say over the last 10 years. Over the last 10 years, I think we have better awareness. I think people are, the stigma about talking about depression mm-hmm. is getting less, but still many people are afraid and suffer in silence and shame. I think as our society has gotten, gotten more um, disconnected, with people transferring, uh, moving around a lot, not living around their close family members. Um, it's sort of uh, a term called crowded loneliness. We're around a lot of people, 
but we're still relatively alone and have few deep relationships. I think that disconnection has increased the amount of depression and stress in people's lives. So depression is increasing. I would believe so, yes. Do you think depression is also increasing because we, as we progress into time, are in a way getting mentally weaker? We are expecting more, but we're not able to get it. So we're setting higher standards or higher expectations. I think the concept of unrealistic expectations when our standard is higher, you know, whenever we watch TV and mm. we see all these people with success and we see they come from small towns and we think, wow, I could be successful too. I could be president. I could be a movie star. I could be a, a Miley Cyrus. Right. You know, we see it so easily, but yet the reality is that's probably not going to happen for most people. So whenever they sort of reality sets in, that's difficult for a lot of people to accept. I think when you blend that with um, the amount of stress in people's lives, and back 40 or 50 years, there was a lot of spiritual grounding, you know, the reading of the Bible in school and having spiritual truths and looking to a higher power and finding solace and, and consolation and resiliency um, built on those, those spiritual principles that many people grew up in. And as our as our country gets more disconnected from faith and deep spirituality, I think we don't have as much resiliency to deal with the, the adversity and the stress that we have in our world. And people succumb to anxiety disorders, depression, and addictions in seems like a lot higher rates than they did 15 or 20 years ago. Now, as part of the rehab, now obviously Robin went for rehab. Mm -hmm. um, and then, then he had depression. How does one recognize the warning signs of suicide? Yeah, the warning signs of suicide, you know, there's certain risk factors that a person has. Obviously, if they've had previous attempts, then they're more likely to attempt again. Drugs and alcohol are significant influencers of suicidal behavior. It lowers the inhibitions, uh, it makes people more impulsive, and it gives more depression and heightens that intensity of depression for people to uh, take their life. A family history of suicide or especially violence uh, is a predictor of a high risk for suicidality. When is suicide a, genetic then? Because you're saying not, if there's a family history, is it in your genes? Yeah, we haven't really found it to be in the genes, but if you're exposed to those kind of behaviors or, you know, the coping skills that are modeled for us, you know, how we see our, our parents and the people around us deal with stress, you know, we often mimic that in various ways. Sometimes we intentionally uh, copy those skills and sometimes just unintentionally, just like you see kids have the similar mannerisms, you know, as their parents when you go to family reunion, you can almost pick out, you know, who has, you know, who's son is who based on some of their hand gestures or how, some of their facial expressions. Well, we copy some of the coping skills as well. So some of those, you know, temper, uh, explosive anger, um, aggressive behavior, you know, sometimes that gets passed down, not necessarily because it's genetic or mm -hmm. hereditary, but because that's what we see role modeled before us. And so we sort of copy that as it's, um, that's part of our lifestyle that we grow up and learn. Now, so is, people that are alone mm -hmm. also is another risk factor. People that are alone or people that are divorced and not feeling that connection and feeling sort of as an outlier on their own island, abandoned or stranded. And is suicide on the increase in America then? Suicide is on the increase. In fact, one of the, one of the, uh, the groups that's at higher risk 
is white males over 60 or 65. And so Robin Williams falls into that category. And, and we think some of it is because, especially for males, they work and they get their identity from their work, their productivity, um, their validation, you know, their importance as a man. They're taking care of their family. They're the breadwinner. But all of a sudden, when that is winding down, they're not sure who they're going to be after that. Where are they going to get their importance? What's their social situation? They always socialized with people from work. And so with that abandonment, with some of those losses, they're at a high risk for suicide, white males over 65. Well, let me ask you, because what you're saying is very profound. There are three components to that, white, male, and over 65. Mm-hmm. Why white? Yeah, white males usually have uh, a higher predilection to be in more professional jobs and professional situations where their identity mm-hmm. has been determined more by their job situation. Whenever somebody says, uh, hey, Carl, who are you? I say, well, I'm a psychiatrist. That's just sort of my natural response. That's not who I am. That's what I do. But white males tend to um, you know, look at that as their identity, their sort of professional uh, attitude or their vocation. There are other ethnic groups, American Indian, Alaskan Natives, that do also have high incidence of suicidality because of some of the very specific pressures and stressors that they deal with in their life as well. So what is it about being over 65 because you would think, you know what, it's time to retire, uh, spend time with, with the wife, and, and be with the grandchildren. Yeah, that's the way, you know, we would like to think that to occur. And for a lot of people, it does. I'm not saying this is the majority, but for a certain chunk of people, maybe mm-hmm. about 20%, they feel a real loss. You know, what has been their whole motivational system going through the last 40 years of their life, is now dwindling down. Some people don't have a good plan of transition as to, oh, I'm going to golf. I'm going to travel with my wife. I'm going to go visit the grandkids and be part of their life. Some people don't set up that kind of transitional process, and so they have lost. They have some loss physically. They just don't get around. Maybe they have hip problems or knee difficulties or other medical issues, and maybe some of their other relatives or other people are starting to die or, or have physical ailments as well. So there's some negative things that are going on, but that big, big piece of who they were and who they identified themselves as and and what motivated them every day to get up, to go to work, to feel good about being a great husband and being a good father and paying off my kids' weddings and um, supporting my family, now all of a sudden that's gone. You know, so who am I? Do I really have value? Am I just now a a cast-off in my society and, you know, they're going to hire the you know, the 30-year-old that can do better than, than I can do that's a lot cheaper and sharper. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that, that really ails a person's heart. Now, you sent me a statistic earlier on. Um, suicide seems to be the 11th leading cause of death in the U.S., but actually it's the third leading cause of death. Could you explain yep. that? Oh, yeah. You know, suicide is just, uh, you know, actually in 2012, the most recent statistics we have, it was the 10th leading cause of death, 39 thousand people, more than breast cancer, more than homicides, more than AIDS. Um, but what is amazing about suicide is that it's dramatically underreported. So whenever a person dies of suicide, if it's vague, the coroner will put on the death certificate something else, like heart attack or accident, motor vehicle accident, if they crashed intentionally, um, just to reduce the stigma and the hurt and the shame to the family of their family member committing suicide. Whenever I 
uh, Hurricane Katrina hit, I went down to Mississippi to work with some people, and there were people that were stopping there. They felt so bad and so depressed, they actually stopped their heart meds and died. It wasn't an overt suicide, but we call it passive suicide. So if you take into account all those passive and underreported, it's estimated that it's underreported about 10 times. So that would make almost 400,000 deaths a year in our land of plenty, the United States. That's one death every 90 seconds. That's the second leading cause of death in the United States. And we have all this kind of awareness for, you know, the NFL Pro Football League will put pink goalposts, and everybody wears pink cleats for a month. But if somebody has depression, nobody comes up to them and asks them. There's no awareness. Uh, there's no pins. There's no ribbons. Um, so these people suffer in silence and in shame and embarrassment. And they don't want to speak up. But there is help available, but they often don't know it or are too embarrassed or ashamed to go reach out for it. But why would a coroner classify it separately? A suicide is a suicide. Well, if, if a person crashes their car intentionally or if they overdose on heroin, on heroin and it's intentional, but the coroner doesn't know, the family can't collect life insurance if it's a suicide. But the family can collect life insurance if it's an accident or just the stigma of it being in the paper, you know, the, just the stigma of the, of the Williams family with Robin Williams, you know, and the shame and the embarrassment and the sadness and grief, just the family knowing that, you know, if you're a wife and your husband commits suicide, a lot of those wives feel just uh, broken. They feel inadequate. You know, one of the most difficult patients that I have to treat are kids whose parents commit suicide because that child is left with the thought that if I were just a better kid, my dad wouldn't have killed himself. And so the coroner tries to save the family from that embarrassment and from that suffering and from sometimes that long-term guilt that they carry by putting he had a heart attack or it was a motor vehicle accident or it was an accidental overdose. And so that's what shows up on the certificate just because of all those other um, infectious elements, even though it's not caused by a bacteria. Suicide is infectious. It affects the loved ones around that individual as it obviously affected the individual who committed suicide. That's quite traumatic. Now, go ahead. Especially a young kid. You know, whenever young kids have a parent commit suicide, and especially if they happen to actually find the parent. I mean, I've mean, i had several patients who have actually been the one that came home from school and saw the person, you know, saw their parent hanging or saw the person with a gunshot wound. So not only do they have the, the feeling that, wow, if I was just a better kid, if I would have just got A's, if I would have just been successful on my sports team, Dad would have been happy with me. He would have lived. But then they get the, the, the double trauma of actually having to find that, per, that, that parent, that loved one, you know, in that kind of situation. Let's talk about the um, medication side of things. Mm-hmm. You go in for depression. The doctor says officially, yes, you, you are depressed. What's your belief on medication for mental illness? Yeah, I'm a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. So one of my roles is to evaluate patients to see if a, if a, if a medication might benefit them. And what I've learned in my, my professional experience and practice in treating thousands of patients is that most of our medications don't cure anybody. You know, with the exception of Could you repeat that, please? Most of the medications? Most of the medications that we have in our society does not cure anybody. Antibiotics will cure an infection, 
but most of the things we have for diabetes, for blood pressure, and all our psychiatric medications, our antidepressants, our medications that help when somebody's hallucinating or paranoid or they have mood swings, none of those medications will cure anybody. Now, with that being said, they are still beneficial. So just like blood pressure medication is beneficial bringing my blood pressure down so I don't have a stroke, it didn't cure my blood pressure problem, but it did bring it down and help with some of the symptoms that I had with my high blood pressure. Psychiatric medications are very good at reducing the symptoms that we have. So when we talked about those symptoms of poor sleep, decreased energy, crying spells, feeling hopeless, guilty, or even suicidal, antidepressants will bring down the amplitude of that depression. So instead of it being an 8 out of 10 or 10 out of 10, it'll be maybe a 2 or a 3 out of 10, something that's more manageable. We're able to sleep, get some good nutrition, then hopefully... What that does is buys us time to then work on the cure or work on the solution. And the solution is really developing those, those psychological, emotional, spiritual skills that give us resiliency in the face of adversity, that help us manage our life, our relationships, our finances, our time, you know, whatever areas of life that we're struggling with. The cure is good skills. Because whenever we make good decisions, our brain chemistry gets better. We actually see that on special brain pictures called SPECT scans or like special x-rays of the brain. And we see whenever we make good decisions, our pictures of our brain actually get better. So are you saying these antidepressants don't work? No, I'm not saying they don't work. I'm not saying what I'm saying is that they don't cure. Okay, but oftentimes a patient will go to their doctor, mm -hmm. they'll get an antidepressant, they've been properly diagnosed as depressed, right. they'll get an antidepressant, mm -hmm. but they're given the message that, hey, just take this medication and everything will be fine and you'll be cured. But unfortunately, that's the wrong message people are getting. They can take that medication, which might have some side effects. So sometimes people are lucky enough to get a medication that doesn't give them side effects. Sometimes they get side effects. Mm -hmm. Sometimes those side effects are tolerable. Sometimes they're not, and we need to switch to a different... So what should the doctor be saying? Should he be saying, well, this is not a cure, but it's a what? But it's a facilitator of the cure. It helps the cure happen, or it reduces the symptoms. It's symptomatic relief. So just like whenever a person has high blood pressure or heart problems, and they go and their blood pressure's through the roof, the doctor gives them a blood pressure medication, but then also gives them a set of instructions and says, hey, look, you need to make some changes in your life. You need to have better nutrition, better diet, more exercise. Go to sleep on time. Get a good eight hours of sleep every night. Mm -hmm. Learn some stress management skills. Manage your finances better. Have better relationship with your, with your wife and a more healthy marriage. That's going to reduce your blood pressure. Right now we're going to give you a medication that does that temporarily. So it's part of a strategy. Part of a strategy, and if you don't do those other things, you're going to die of a heart attack. You might be on three or four heart meds, but you're still going to die of a heart attack if you don't implement any of those other more important and deeper impact elements of the strategy. Now, can long-term medication cause addiction and dependence? Certain medications can. So, you know, as we look at psychiatric medications and the other significant classes, pain medications, you know, there are certain pain meds like aspirin and ibuprofen, that are not addicting. But there are certain other more potent ones that are narcotics and Oxycontin and Percocets are the more famous ones that are addicting. Same with 
With psychiatric medications, there are certain ones like antidepressants that are not addicting. But there are certain tranquilizers or anxiety medications like Xanax or Ativan or Clonopin that can be addicting for people to take them for a prolonged period of time. So that's why it's real important that, you know, like you said, it's part of a strategy. Mm. And so that medication is just one arm of that strategy, just the temporary, but usually the quickest acting. But that's the, unfortunately, that's the, that's the danger that people see the quick acting and say, well, you know, we're sort of lazy as a society, you know, psychologically and spiritually. So if I have something that can give me a quick pick-me-up or quick relief, we unfortunately turn to that a lot more readily than the, well, let me a little bit. Let me exercise sort of those longer term things. We sort of, you know, put that off till tomorrow. Are we becoming a nation of hypochondriacs? Um, I think we're a nation that is a little too sensitive to some of the struggles that we have. No, because there seems to be a pill for everything. You know, if I'm watching TV, there'll be an ad, uh, a dieting pill. Then there's, you know, a headache pill. There's, There's an everything pill. Yeah, you know, thankfully, God's given us good science mm-hmm. and good discovery to understand better how the body works. Mm-hmm. And as we understand better how the body works, we're finding ways that chemically we can uh, fill the gap a little bit. We can give some temporary symptom relief. But again, it's not the cure. So people need to work on those skills. And unfortunately, our society, whenever they go to the doctor, they want a pill. You know, I want that happy pill. I want the pill that even though they have a virus, and there is no medication for a virus, you just wait out that, you know, whether that's nasal congestion or the flu, you have to wait it out. But unfortunately, a lot of doctors are giving antibiotics because the patient wants a pill. I want something to help me now. I don't want to wait. I don't want to pay $50 for my copay. Now the doctor said, well, you just have to go home and uh, sleep it off for the next few days, chicken soup and just a little bit of rest and a little Tylenol and you'll be fine. I want something, I want something more potent than that. Um, so we, we're sort of this microwave you know, generation of I want some relief now. And I, you know, I want what I want and I want it now mentality. That's what I find. You know, every time my friends go to a doctor or I go, they're very, um, what do you call them, antibiotics? Antibiotics for infections, yeah. yeah they're, they're just happy to sign off on, on these for any little thing rather than a good night's rest mm-hmm. or a change of diet or something natural. Well, with our health care system, um, you know, doctors and insurances and reimbursement is such that doctors aren't given very much time to sit with a patient to get some of that other so important information mm. that helps me really see the whole patient. So now I can look at the whole patient. I can prescribe something that's fuller in benefit to them. Like you say, getting better sleep or dealing with stress or, um, you know, maybe their, maybe their in-law moved in with them because she has Alzheimer's, you know, and that's causing a lot of stress. But if, if I don't dig into what's going on in their life, that, they are, that their blood pressure is up, I'm never going to know that. I might not be able to refer them to the right person that can help them deal with that older uh, person in their house and maybe some other services that they can access. So when that, you have that, just that five-minute visit with the doctor, you know, the doctor feels sort of compelled. Well, I want them to feel that they got something from this visit. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give them a pill. And the patient is sort of demanding, well, I, I don't want to tell you my story. I just want something to fix me now. Just get me over the hump now. And there's sort of an urgency to, you know, that microwave generation of just, you know, I want a pill now. Um, just give me some relief. I'll deal with the, the, the consequences of it tomorrow. I want relief now. Now, one thing that fascinated me about you was in your profession, you're actually bringing spirituality into all of this. 
Exactly. Yeah. And that's, to me, that's the most important part. Really? So tell me more. Well, you know, in my life, um, I, I struggled, like you said in the, in the opening. You know, I moved around a lot when I was a kid. Um, I stuttered. I had a lisp. Um, you know, you make friends and you leave them. You make friends and you leave them. So I start to get um, hurt by uh, those those continual dropping of friends to the point where I didn't really want any more relationships because I didn't want to go through the hurt again. Mm-hmm. So I developed anxiety, developed depression, and ended up leading to an alcohol addiction. In the middle of medical school, I got arrested for six counts of aggravated assault and was in jail. And it was at that time, even though I was very interested in decision-making and wanted to be a psychiatrist ever since I was a little kid, obviously my decisions weren't working for me. So the thing I was studying you know, wasn't helping me. And it was at that time in jail where God said, Carl, you made me your savior when you were a little kid, but you never made me the Lord of your life. And that's where my life turned around when I realized that you know, I had written the book, according to, you know, The Life According to Carl, and was following that guideline, mm-hmm. that GPS for my life, and it wasn't working. And I realized there's something more powerful. You know, my creator, you know, anybody who creates something, they make an instruction manual that says, here's how you get the most of this. And so as I started to look at the Bible and say, hey, I'm going to make God my authority, and I'm going to start to practice the things he teaches in his instruction manual, the Bible. And that was just a magical uh, time of my life where I started to understand who I was, where I got value, where I got purpose. I didn't need to people please to gain appreciation or attention or love mm-hmm. uh, from others. And my life turned around. My alcohol addiction then went away. My depression went away. I mean, it wasn't overnight. It took me about three years you know, to work on this and to dig into who I was and apply this, this knowledge from the Word and have faith in it that it really was true so that I could apply it to my life on a regular basis. And, and it's just magical. And that's why I help try to help people understand and influence and infuse into their life. But what if an atheist came into you to see you for depression and then you're telling him about spirituality? He would probably leave yeah, more know. depressed. No, you know, I have atheists come to, uh, um, you know, come to see me. I get referred by different doctors in the mm-hmm. area that know my Christian background and what some of my life story is, but they know that I get different results than what general mainstream medicine gets. Right. And that spirituality, I was invited into Iraq, the first psychiatrist invited into Iraq after the fall of Saddam Hussein, to teach my program because it had a level of spirituality. And so even though they're 99% Muslim, the fact that there was a spiritual component to it, they had seen so much failure in their healthcare system with just the medical version of treatment, and they had so many people that were traumatized, the towns that were gassed by uh, Saddam and um, sexual abuse and suicide and addictions were so high there. But bringing in that spiritual component, even an atheist has a sense of morals, of values, wonders, why am I here? What's my purpose? So is it like a meditative trance, the spirituality component? Could that be substituted by having some element of meditation around you and about you to keep your soul at peace? I, I think that, what you know, like you said, we're a very me-centered society right, right now. And so something that takes us out of me-centered into a bigger picture of life. Mm-hmm. Obviously, to me, the most truthful and biggest picture is God's view. So as I understand God better, spend time with God, spend time in his book, the word that reveals him, I have a better understanding of what his lenses are, how he sees life, why he's doing certain things in my life. And so, you know, meditation often is a form of getting outside myself, of seeing something bigger, having a more clear uh, objective view 
of what's going on in my life and in the world around me. Now, trying to figure out how do I meditate on things that are truthful? Mm-hmm. I mean, if I'm meditating on a pink elephant that doesn't exist, that's not going to help me get very far. And what I've found in the Bible as I've grown in my professional experiences, as we teach people um, life skills that are consistent with biblical principles, their actual brain chemistry, when we see it on pictures of the brain, actually gets better. So to me, decision-making is the exercise for the brain. It what makes our brain better. And as we apply those biblical principles, we see people's brains light up and get so much better. Whenever they don't apply those principles, their brain chemistry actually gets more injured or weakened. You use the word decision-making. And that's sort of very crucial to the sort of cure that you give to your patients. Tell me a little bit about that. I believe the acronym for it is SPEARS, right? Yeah, SPEARS is the, is the program that I've developed. Um, you know, when I was a little kid, I was always, at the age of five, God laid on my heart, what, you know, what is decision-making? How do we make decisions? You know, and whenever I was in second grade, um, you know, I Dream a Genie was a great show on TV. I mean, what young boy doesn't like that, that show and, and be able to have wishes? And my Sunday school teacher said there's a place in the Bible where God grants a wish, and Solomon could have anything he, he wanted And he wished for wisdom. And my Sunday school teacher said, godly decision-making skills. And so that's what I've always pursued is how to be a good decision-maker. And in our society, you know, if we asked your listeners if they could, you know, uh, email in, you know, whoever had a decision-making class growing up? You know, we all had art, music, science, math, but nobody ever gets a decision-making class. We still don't, I don't. We don't. No, not at all. And that's the most important skill. I mean, we want our kids to be good decision makers. So what we does want... SPEARS stand for? SPEARS is the six components mm-hmm. in every single decision that we make. And it occurs, all these six components occur in the same order every single time. Mm-hmm. So the first one is situation or stimuli, S. The second one is P, is my perception or my view of that situation. E is there's an emotion. So after I view a situation, I'm going to get an emotion. A is I'm going to assess my options and weigh the pros and cons of those options. R is I'm going to respond or make the decision. And then S is summary thought, where I evaluate how did that decision process go. So give me an example where it worked on a patient, on on what decision they were about to make and how it worked and flowed through. Yeah, I'll give you just a personal example. For me, you know, I had a situation, you know, earlier in my uh, adult married life, and my wife came home on a Saturday morning. I'm doing bills at the kitchen table, and she comes in and says, Carl, the screen door is broke. So that's the stimuli. The screen door is broke. Now, my me-centered perception is, um, wow, she's intruding on my day. She's calling me a bad husband. She's saying I can't take care of the house like our neighbor is so good at. And so my emotion that followed was one of anger, one of resentment, one of feeling incompetent. Hmm. So I assessed my options of, well, I can scream at her, I can ignore her, or I can deflect and say, hey, look, you didn't do the laundry. Good choice. And, and get her on uh, you know, a different topic, which I you know, was very good at at the time. Then the response I chose was, well, I'm going to ignore her. And then as she brought it up a second time, then I deflected and accused her of a laundry issue. And then my summary thought was, oh, good. I got her off the topic of the screen door. I don't have to fix that. and I'll be able to watch the ball game later today like I, I really plan to. And what we do with the Spears process is teach people their old way, that me-centered way of how they make decisions, and then try to help them transition to, well, what's a more God-centered way 
mm-hmm. or a better person that they could be. So you would have the same stimuli, the screen door is broke, my wife would say, but instead of it being sort of a me-centered view, I'd have a God-centered view of, wow, how can I help my wife? Or there's something broken, how can I fix it? How can I be productive? How can I be useful? And so then my emotion, instead of being angry or incompetent or frustrated, would be one of curiosity and happiness and feeling connected to my wife. I would assess my options as, well, I could go look at the door. Um, I could sit down and talk with her. I can ask her what she noticed whenever she saw the broken door. And so I chose then after that point to, to talk to her and sit down. Hey, honey, you know what you noticed? Let's sit down and talk about what we can do to get it fixed. And then reviewing it, that summary thought is, wow, I feel more connected to my wife. I'm able to tackle a problem in the house. And I've honored God in being able to be a more productive and honorable person. Well, in that case, you're one in a million, I tell you that, out of all the husbands and wives. But, but, if... Well, my wife is appreciative of it, that's for sure. But yeah. I teach this to my kids. My kids started learning it, you know, when they're in middle school. They can start to learn this because it's so easy and so quick. For, for, for listeners and for me growing up in my life, life happens so fast. I mean, we're in a, you know, Twitter, uh, social media, yeah. um, you know, texting, everything. The merry-go-round just spins faster and faster and faster. And they say athletes, the great athletes, are able to slow the game down. So they can see one, two steps ahead. And so what I wanted to try to do for my own life, this is the transformation process that transformed my life, putting spirituality and, and psychological uh, science and education together. But what I want to try to help my patients do is how to slow their mind down, how to understand how God designed their mind to work, and so they can use it for their benefit. So instead of being overwhelmed with the 80,000 decisions that we have to make every day, how can they feel proficient? How can they feel good? How can they feel like they have expertise instead of being reacting to life? Well, let me interrupt you there. Let's go back to depression. Mm-hmm. Someone who's listening out there, uh, if they follow the Spears concept, and ultimately their response is that I need to call Lighthouse Network. Mm-hmm. Let's say I did. I was sad, but it prolonged for two weeks, and I wasn't sort of functioning right and things like that, and... I'm not a guy who sort of takes or likes to take medication, so I need some help. Mm-hmm. I call in. Walk me through. What's the number I have to call? Our helpline number is 844-LIFE-CHANGE. That's what we're trying to do, change people's lives. Okay, that's fine. So I'm calling in. Life change. I call in. Someone yeah, picks up the, get... And it's 24 hours? It's 24-7. Okay, so someone picks up the phone. You're going to get a trained professional counselor Mm -hmm. who's skilled. You know, we have our main guy is Dr. Dave. He's a former pastor, a trained counselor and therapist. He's going to answer the phone. Okay. We're here to care for people, to give them support, encouragement, and most importantly, give hope. So many of our callers feel hopeless. You know, oftentimes they've tried. I would be scared to call. So what would they be asking me? Yeah, you know, we'd ask you your name. Uh, And if I don't want to give my name? That's okay. It can be anonymous. Okay. Tell us what's hurting you today. What are you struggling with? And the person would discuss their situation. Now, 80% of our So I don't have to give my name, right? Don't have to give your name, no. Okay, so carry on. Yeah. So 80% of our callers are actually loved ones usually the parent or the spouse of somebody who's struggling just because of just the thing you're saying, that people are afraid or sometimes they're a little too proud or they're too prideful. Oh, so I could call from on my wife's behalf You can call if on my your wife wife's wife is behalf. depressed. 
Exactly. Okay, I'm yeah, going to call them call right away. Energy. Sometimes they don't have the energy. Sometimes they don't have the concentration. Okay. You know, whenever you're real depressed. That's good. We've got so five often. minutes left on the show. I'll be calling in the sixth minute. <laughs> so then what happens? So I explain the symptoms. Uh... Yeah, you're going to explain some of the symptoms. We're going to ask questions to help elicit that information mm-hmm. so we can get a little bit better understanding of your situation. And then we're going to try to figure out, well, what's going to be the best treatment situation for you. So we don't diagnose you over the phone. We don't treat you over the phone. We're just here to help, sort of like the Good Samaritan. You know, the Good Samaritan found somebody who was wounded on the side of the road, and he picked them up and he carried them to the inn so they can get treatment. So we're like that Good Samaritan. We come across people that are hurting. You know, they're experiencing some storms in their life, and we're going to help them navigate that storm to get to a safe place. Okay, so you that take all the details down, you take what, what, mm-hmm. the, what the troubles are and things like that, and then what do you recommend? Yeah, based on the urgency of the situation, yep. some people need a residential situation. So some people might need a rehab. Mm-hmm. Our, our primary specialty is people that have addiction issues. So we can help them get to a rehab situation. So for that, we can give them the names of some situations. Uh, most people don't know how to navigate their insurance card and Medicare and uh, co-pays and deductibles and all this terminology that's very confusing in our in our healthcare system. And so we do that what we call case management. We help manage their case. We help do the logistics because whenever you're depressed, whenever you have an addict uh, who's struggling, whenever you're stressed, you don't want to wait on hold. You don't want to you know recite your last four of your social and that information. So we get that information and we start to look at where in our database do we have the right fit for you. Mm-hmm. And then we help connect you to that situation, and we help you make the arrangements to be able to get to that particular situation. Well, how much do you charge for this? Our service is free. I always forget that because I'm so used to giving the free service that our service is free. You call us. You can call us as many times as you want. We're going to help you navigate your problem. We're going to help you get through the storm of your situation, and our services are free. Now, depending on what your insurance is or your particular, you know, addiction or depression or anxiety, whatever treatment that you get, you know, is between you and that treater, and that payment goes to that treater. We don't get that. We're not part of that process. We just are the Good Samaritan that gets you there. We try to help vet those situations to make sure that, you know, they're screened and they're appropriate situations that are going to take good care of you and address, you know, medical issues, psychological issues, and spiritual issues. And then we get you to that. So where do you make your money from for to exist? We're a nonprofit organization. You know, we get we have donors, uh, we get grants. Um, you know, on our website, lighthousenetwork.org, you'll see different, you know, the Spears material, mm-hmm. DVDs on depression, on people that have issues with cutting and self-harm. And then I do conferences and speak and give various presentations. And then we work with some different facilities to help them develop. You know, my specialty, as we talked about, is putting that faith-based component into the treatment so we can really treat the whole person. And a lot of facilities are interested in that, but they don't know how to do it. I've only got about a minute left. So I've only got a minute left. So I just want to quickly ask you, what are the most common calls you get? Our most common call we get is usually from a mother who calls for their son who is addicted to usually heroin or pain meds, and they don't know what to do with them. They've run through their money. Um, the kid is uh, sometimes uh, frauding checks or using their credit card and running up. You know, 
get us help. We've looked at a bunch of different, uh, you know, our doctor, our family doc, the school counselor. Nobody can help us. What can you do? And, and we're able to help that, that parent, you know, ease them, calm them, let them know that, hey, we've seen situations like this turn around. So there is significant hope. And what's your success and, rate? A success rate meaning getting people into treatment or the success rate after that person leaves treatment? Both, I guess. Yeah, after they leave treatment, we don't, you know, we don't follow up. We get them to treatment. We're very good at getting people to treatment. Mm-hmm. What they, you know, like we talked about, that's only the first step for people. So that's, so that's, uh, that's a large success rate? Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, if they follow up with the programs that their treaters give them, they're going to have a great success rate, Carl, you know, like I did in my life. Carl, how can our listeners get in touch with you? 844-LIFE-CHANGE is our 800 number. Mm-hmm. You know, 844, it's 24-7. My email address, you go to lighthousenetwork.org, and you'll see me listed under, you know, contact us, kbenzio at lighthousenetwork.org. You can email me. I'd love to answer your questions and talk to you more about this and really help you access the help that's there. I mean, the unfortunate thing about Robin Williams is depression is treatable. It's treatable. This is an avoidable, suicide is avoidable. We can do something about it, but people have to know that help is available, and they have to get the right help that looks at all three spheres, spirit, mind, and body, and we deliver that. Thank you for coming on the show, Carl. Thank you for the enlightenment. Hey, thank you, Vip. Blessings to your uh, listeners. Thank you, sir. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Your comments and your follow are so very welcome on my Twitter account at Vip Jaswal and my Facebook page, The Vip Jaswal Report. A special shout-out of thanks to my dream team, William Sanchez and Rick Buser. I'll be back next Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern with more fascinating stories that fill our lives with the inspiration and information we so need to kickstart the week. I wish you a wonderful evening tonight with your family and loved ones. And until next Sunday, have a productive and a happy week ahead.